Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I'm Grant McCauley. These are the Kia Studios and we have reached the end of the first weekend of the second half as we rolled right through the all-star break. I think everybody got the chance to recharge a little bit, have a little bit of fun. The national league won an all-star game. There were eight Braves representatives. A lot of things have been going on this week. Unfortunately for Atlanta though, stumbling a little bit over the weekend after a very convincing win in their return, a nine, nothing victory over the white Sox. Then a game that went a little bit sideways on Saturday, some bad fielding really caused Spencer Strider and the chance to win this series. I felt like kind of went out the window last night, and in the Braves, uh, the White Sox kind of returned the favor to them for that opener, the 9 nothing win. Well, Chicago rolled right over the Atlanta club in the finale, an 8-1 victory. And just like that, the Braves' streak of 11 consecutive series victories was done. And so was their string of winning every rubber game thus far this season. That one's another one that went by the wayside on Sunday. But as we well know, it's a long season. Braves aren't going to win them all. Unfortunately for Sunday, just never really felt like they had that chance unlike Saturday. We'll talk a lot about the weekend series against the White Sox, and of course, get you set up for what's coming next, which is the Arizona Diamondbacks. They're going to be rolling into town. They're going to be an interesting team to watch in the second half, as they were in the first. They're stumbling just a little bit, uh, heading into the All-Star break, coming out of it. We'll see exactly what the Arizona club has up its sleeve, because if you flash back to early June, and it feels just like it did a year ago, but if you flash back to early June, Arizona was a club that had a chance to you know, really you know, beat up on the Braves a little bit, but Atlanta found itself in the midst of a whole bunch of winning in the month of June for the second straight year, thanks in large part to some dramatics out in the desert. Now, how can the Braves uh, do as hosts of this Arizona club, which has been one of the better surprise teams in baseball in the first half? We're going to find out over the course of the coming week. Of course, we've got a lot to get to on the show. Before we get started, though, I want to remind you to sub- uh, subscribe to From the Diamond, wherever you get your podcasts. It's available there and on the Odyssey app, of course. And you can find me on social media pretty much everywhere, at Grant McCauley. I'm on Twitter right there, as you well know, if you've been following me in the vaunted 4040 tracker for Ronald Acuna Jr., which was very busy on Saturday. You can find that and many more insights on Twitter. You can also follow me on Instagram at Grant McCauley. The show is on Instagram and Twitter as well. At From the Diamond is where you can find it, an underscore on the end of the Twitter. And you can find me on Threads, which I know everybody's just dying for one more place where I can post links and uh, similar content. Well, Meadow was listening, and here we are. You can also like the show on Facebook and find links to all of those things at FromTheDiamond.com. With that being said, uh, let's set up what is, I think, going to be a pretty fun show, despite the fact the Braves lost this series over the course of the weekend. We had a very busy week with the All-Star festivities, with the Major League Baseball draft, and Atlanta trying to reload that farm system with a whole bunch of collegiate players and some really interesting arms. Well, we're going to talk about that a lot on this show. I'm going to have Jeff Ponce of Baseball America join me a little bit later decides things up for what exactly this draft class is and some of the strategy, I think, that went behind some of the arms that were drafted, some upside plays. We're going to dive all into that, break it all down. Jeff Ponce of Baseball America is going to stop by later to help me do that. 
As you know, baseball is full of nostalgia, and the Atlanta Braves have no shortage of that. Going to have Braves great Dale Murphy join me later on this hour. He's going to talk about some of the memories that he had of those 82-83 seasons when he won back-to-back MVPs, and well, why would we be talking about Braves and MVPs? Well, Ronald Acuna Jr., could be on the fast track and looks to be on the fast track, the inside track, whatever you want to call it, the odds-on favorite to win the National League MVP. And I'm going to get Dale Murphy's thoughts on what exactly Ronald Acuna Jr. is doing this year and has done this year because everybody around the baseball world, if they haven't already taken notice, I think this is about the time that you should probably make sure you don't adjust the dial on your TV set. This guy is appointment viewing, and he has been putting on a show this year. But I'm going to have Dale Murphy join me a little bit later on the show to talk about some of his memories from those Old Braves teams of the 1980s, the TBS clubs. So that's what's coming up a little bit later. But let's dive into this week that was for the Atlanta Braves. The first inning explosion that we saw again happening against the White Sox with the Matt Olson Grand Slam in the opener of the series. That was probably the biggest highlight, though. The Saturday show by Ronald Acuna Jr. continued to let us know that he's going to keep doing this MVP type thing and we need to keep a close eye on it. Two home runs and a stolen base for Acuna on Saturday. But that first inning thing. I've gone through and and really tracked some numbers on this, and I'll get into it a little bit more as we go on, but you just don't find too many teams that are able to score with the frequency that the Braves are in the first inning. And the stat has grown so big that it's not even just, well, this is the biggest inning for the Atlanta Braves or it's the biggest first inning in baseball. The Braves, with 95 first inning runs this year, have scored more runs in that inning than any other team in baseball has scored in any other inning over the course of the season. That is how just explosive this offense is. It's not going to be there each and every night, but it's been a big part of the Braves' success, particularly since June the 1st. And with Matt Olson continuing his tear, if we weren't talking so much about Ronald Acuna Jr., and I know I mentioned this a week or two ago, there are a couple other Braves that have some pretty good cases to get some MVP consideration, and they may get some votes. You know, down ballot, I would say Matt Olson's one of those guys. I'd say Sean Murphy is definitely one of those guys as well. Uh, These are guys putting up career years and helping drive this Braves offense. It goes well beyond just what Ronald Acuna Jr. is able to do. But when you're putting on the kind of show that Acuna is, it's kind of hard to get top billing on any given night when you consider what could go on. Uh, The Braves' homestand is going to continue. As I mentioned, it didn't start off on the note that they wanted it to, losing two out of three to the White Sox. Colby Allard suffering a shoulder injury, dealing with some inflammation. We'll see how long he might be out or down or out of the Braves' plans as far as the rotation is concerned. And, Man, it's just the tip of the iceberg for pitching injuries for the Braves this week. I hate to bury the lead on that kind of thing, but if you've been following this club, opening up the second half, losing not one but two key relievers. Nick Anderson lands on the 60-day injured list. He's got a shoulder issue. A.J. Minter lands on the 15-day injured list with a lesser shoulder injury, and hopefully Minter will be back as soon as that time is up on the I.L., but you're not going to have Nick Anderson for a couple of months. How much is this going to change the Atlanta bullpen when both of your key setup men for Rysel Iglesias are unavailable. And this is going to ask a lot of the Braves to continue doing what they've had to do really all year long, and that is find some resiliency and have that next man up mentality and have that belief that, hey, this guy might not be available, but this one is going to step in and be able to kind of hold court. And when you start to think about this bullpen and the injuries, and they kind of compound on each other. You lost Jesse Chavez last month. He's hoping to return, I think, some point early in August is what's on his mind and obviously is his goal. Can we get Dylan Lee back in this bullpen at some point in early August? That would certainly help a lot. And then you start thinking about getting A.J. Minter back, you know, just after the trade deadline on August the 1st. But, hey, trade deadline. That's kind of an important conversation we're going to be having the next couple of weeks because I don't know any way around the fact that if you're the Braves and you're Alex Anthopoulos and you're creating that shopping list, 
you probably already had bullpen help on there. But if it was a bullet point that was a little bit further down that list, it probably moved a little bit higher when you lost A.J. Minter for a certain amount of time and Nick Anderson for an even longer period of time. And then on top of those pitching injuries that you've dealt with, your rotation has been without Kyle Wright and been without Max Fried, but that could be changing here by the end of the month or at least the first portion of August. Max Fried is out on a rehab assignment and has looked pretty good in his first couple of starts. He's going to ramp that pitch count up in that third one, I believe, and start to take that next big step toward hopefully rejoining the Braves rotation before too long. But there are a lot of arms that just aren't available to the Braves, and despite all of that, they have managed to march out to the best record in all of baseball, and I think that's a testament to the depth of this team. But it continues to be tested. That test has not stopped. Brian Snitker's been asked about this. We talked to him yesterday and the day before, and the day before that, really. It feels like just about every day. How are you guys going to respond to this? Uh, what does it mean to not have this guy available All of those things are just the questions a manager has to deal with, and his answer remains the same. I believe in this group, believe in our preparation, our plan, and we got guys who are going to have to step up. Does it hurt to lose A.J. Minter and Nick Anderson? Absolutely. But you're going to have to figure out a way. Maybe Joe Jimenez, Kirby Yates, several other arms. Ben Heller, I think it's been another one, a really nice arm for the Braves who's jumped in. I mean, even on Sunday, you saw Michael Soroka in a relief appearance, but that is more of a one-off scenario mostly because you didn't get the innings you needed to out of Colby Allard. I think that's the number one reason why. And you had Soroka available because he would have thrown aside, and they want to get him some innings with this all-star break and then, of course, not maybe getting another start until coming up over the course of the week or the weekend. It's good to get some guys some innings. But with the Braves' offense under wraps, thanks to Dylan Cease and the Chicago bullpen, getting a little bit of work. Not necessarily a bad thing, but this Braves' bullpen, they're going to have to sort it all out. They're going to hope to get healthy at the right time down the stretch, but this was kind of a rough week when it came to more injury conversations and more injury announcements than the Braves would like to deal with. And adding Colby Allard to the list, not sure exactly what the prognosis will be and where exactly the Braves will go as far as getting them maybe a little bit more rotation help. But I think the name Max Fried is a pretty big name to keep watching as far as this rehab assignment is concerned. Uh, the Braves continue to just mash home runs, 173 of those on the season. Two more from Ronald Acuna Jr. on Saturday. I mean, this is an offense the likes of which, if you're looking for reasons why maybe the pitching doesn't worry you as much, when you do have an offense that is the best in baseball, the deepest lineup in baseball, and is capable of doing what this one is. Now, they're not going to be able to outslug everybody every single night. But as we've seen over the course of the last, really, five, six solid weeks, you give this team a little bit of an opening, they can put some runs up in bunches. They can do it early, they can do it late. And that's been a big part of this club's success. There's no two ways about it. You may need a little bit more of that over the next couple of weeks as you get up to the trade deadline. And as we get into the show a little bit later, I mean, we'll take a look at the bigger Major League Baseball trade deadline picture because there's some pretty big stories. And I don't know that there's going to be a bigger one. I mean, until we get to the winner, as far as this guy goes. But Shohei Otani, will the Angels trade the biggest superstar in the game? If they do decide to trade him, you know, what team is going to be able to pay the price And how big is that price going to be? I mean, there are reports that came out this week. Multiple top 100 prospects? Well, yeah, I would say so. Even as a rental, when Shohei Otani will be a free agent at the close of the season, you could go out if you're a team and conceivably get a help in your rotation and a serious upgrade in your lineup. All in the person of one individual. That's how much of an impact Shohei Otani can make. And if you're the Angels, I think you kind of end up at that crossroads where you have to decide, all right, well, are we really going to throw in the towel about trying to keep this guy around because I just can't imagine a scenario where they trade him away to somewhere else and he comes back and signs again. So Artie Moreno and company are going to have a very interesting decision on their hands. And 
then you start thinking about what club will be able to pay the price, what club will be able to afford a player like Shohei Otani in a trade because it will obviously change your minor league system, which is there both for building up as the Braves have done so well over the past few years and creating your own stars and your own talent and building a foundation for a winning club, but also the trade capital. I mean, it's there for that too. But what is three-plus months of Shohei Otani worth when you compare it to maybe the next four or five years after that? If you're a team that feels like you can sign Shohei Otani in the offseason, do you go ahead and jump into the trade market and pay that price and then pay the other bigger price, which I think could be $600 million, if we're being honest. I mean, I don't see why not. But we can get into all that a little bit later on in the show. So a lot of fascinating things are going on. It's not just what the Braves are going to be looking for. This could be an interesting trade deadline on a number of different fronts. And we'll dive into more of the Braves news and headlines from the past week and, uh, and you know, talk a little bit about what this offense is doing a little bit about the Braves draft, some of these injuries, all of those things as we roll on here. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. As we continue our Braves and baseball discussion throughout the course of the next couple of hours, thank you as always for taking a little bit of time out of your weekend to join me in what was the first weekend of the second half, a little bit disappointing for the Braves as they lose 2-3 to the White Sox at Truist Park, but the homestand continues after an off day on Monday. They'll get back to work against the Arizona Diamondbacks. But the Braves' offense, I mean, this is a group that, for the most part, just about every single night seems to be getting to work. And who does more work? Who does more heavy lifting than Ronald Acuna Jr.? The answer is nobody because it's a trick question. I don't know that anybody in baseball, especially in the National League, is doing more work than is Ronald Acuna Jr., uh, we watched again on Saturday night, just an unbelievable show for this guy, who, and that's what he is. He is a show. Get there early. You make sure you're in your seat for the first at-bat of the game because Ron Lacuna Jr. could do something special, which begins with a leadoff home run, or as a lot of his teammates pointed out, and I wrote an article about this over the course of the All-Star break. I talked to several teammates, Braves coaches, and uh, former Braves as well, just trying to get an idea of what their perception of the 2023 season for Ron Lacuna Jr. is, and Man, the, the explanations and the descriptions that I got were exactly the kind that you and I would come up with. It's unbelievable. It's fun to watch. It's you know exceeding expectations when expectations are always high. That is exactly the way that Michael Soroka defined watching Ronald Acuna Jr. grow from a 17-year-old kid in rookie ball to being the best player in the National League, if not all of baseball, with all due respect to what Shohei Otani does on a regular basis. But uh, watching on Saturday night was a pretty incredible show. Once again, two more home runs for Acuna. I had a little bit of a, a joke with Miles Garrett of Fox 5 right before the game. I said the 40-40 tracker kind of slowed down. I said, well, it's the all-star break, you know. I've only been back for a day or two. Well, Ronald decided to go ahead and hit two home runs and steal a base. That's 43 steals for this guy. That is tied for the major league lead now. Look at what Ronald's doing. 20-something homers plus 40-something steals, and we're just after the all-star break. Well, as you know, I like to keep the pace of these kinds of things, and we're talking about a 41-homer, 75-steal pace that Ronald Acuna Jr. is on. Got on base three more times on Sunday against the White Sox. No more steals, no more home runs, but still. I mean, this is a guy that's hitting 330. He has just cut into his strikeout rate. He's cut it in half, more than in half, since the 2020 COVID campaign. I mean, this was about a 30% strikeout rate for Ronald. It's down to about 13.5%, I believe, at last check. But I looked today because somebody asked me on Twitter, and you can follow me at Grant McCauley. They said, um, how many multi-walk games does Ron Lacuna Jr. have this year? Because he walked in his first two plate appearances on Sunday. I said, all right, well, let me look that up. 
That's his eighth multi-walk game in 92 contests for the Braves. That's a pretty good little number. Then I wanted to see, okay, well, how does that compare to strikeouts? Because he ain't striking out that much this year. In fact, it's the best he's ever done as a big leaguer at any point in his career. He's only got six multi-strikeout games this year. So he has walked in a game twice or more, and he's done it more times than he has struck out more than once in a game. That's pretty unbelievable. And it just goes to underscore. I mean, continued the success for this guy is baked into a lot of the trends that you see. You can look at that stat cast data, and it tells you everything you need to know. But when you take in to account the fact that he has improved his plate discipline, his contact skills are even better this year, the walk rate is right where it needs to be, and the strikeout rate is way down. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons why Ronald Acuna Jr. is having the season that he's having. 215-plus hit pace, 40-plus doubles, 40-plus homers, 100-plus RBI, and 140-plus runs scored. I believe it's 145. I mean, I went back and looked at this, and it's in that same piece for the Marietta Daily Journal about Ronald Acuna Jr.'s teammates have to marvel at what this guy's doing. You can check that out. There's a link on Twitter for you. But he would become the first player since Alex Rodriguez to score 140 or more runs and knock in 100 runs in the same season. Now, back in baseball history, since 1900, that's happened 40 times. Eight of those belong to Babe Ruth. Since 1950, though, it's only happened seven times. And that just lets you know how rare this kind of thing is becoming. And looking through all of those players, the 20-something, I believe 27 different players that have done it, or, or 22 different players that have done it, none of them were a primary leadoff hitter. That's something else to think about. This guy's knocking in 100-plus runs at the leadoff spot on pace to score a modern franchise record for the Braves of 145-plus runs. It's a pretty unbelievable thing that this kid's been putting together. And again, those home run paces, in case you're keeping up with that 40-40 counter, 40 home runs and 75 stolen bases as of Sunday. He is on some kind of tear. Nobody has ever joined the 40-40 club and stolen 50 or more bases. It truly is a 40-40 club. Because usually it takes somebody getting to the home run mark and then you know trying to back into those steals, find those steals. Jose Canseco, I think it took him all the way down to the last week or so of the season in 1988 when he became the first guy to do it. I don't think Barry Bonds had quite as much trouble in his 40-40 season. A-Rod had maybe the most dominant of all the 40-40 seasons thus far. And then Alfonso Soriano did it 17 years ago with the Washington Nationals, which is just weird. I don't even remember Alfonso Soriano playing that long with the Washington Nationals. He was a Yankee. He was a Cub. He was a Ranger. But apparently the stopover in Washington there for a hot minute and had a 40-40 season, so good for him. But Ronald could be just the fifth guy to join that club. Absolutely mind-boggling is what this guy has been doing. But those numbers that Acuna has put up, especially the run scored, you're going to need somebody to do the job of driving you in. Matt Olson's been doing that job for the Braves lineup, especially since he's moved to the cleanup spot. He now has 77 runs batted in. That is the most in the National League. He's just behind Adolis Garcia for the most runs batted in in all of baseball. He's got a very good chance at a 50 home run season. He's on pace for 53 of those, which would be a new Braves franchise record. Andrew Jones set that in 2005 with 51. And the runs batted in, he's now on pace for, I believe, 137 of those. Last time a Brave had 135 or more was 1953. It was Ed Matthews. And Hugh Duffy has the record of 145. That's the only guy that's had more than Ed Matthews had back in 53. And we're going to talk about underrated Braves. It ain't just Matt Olson. Let's talk about Eddie Matthews. We can do a whole show on how underrated he is. He's a member of the 500 home run club, and I don't think he gets talked about enough. And he does have a retired number over there at Truist Park. So if you have an opportunity to go and see Somebody who got off to an incredible start, and we talk about Ronald Acuna Jr. and what he did from like the age of 20 to now, he's 25 years old, having this incredible season. Well, Eddie Matthews wasn't stealing bases, but he came up at 20 years old. 
And he just started hitting home runs. And I remember there was either it was a sporting news or a sports magazine that I saw from maybe 1957 or 1958. And the question about Ed Matthews was, is he the next home run king? Well, they had the team right. They just had the player wrong. It was going to be Henry Aaron and not Eddie Matthews. But the Matthews and Aaron connection, more home runs as teammates than Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. Take a moment and think about that. This is pretty incredible. Putting that aside, though, Matt Olson's having an incredible season, and the Braves up and down the lineup. You can make a case where a lot of different guys are having their career year or just in some cases there have been some comebacks. Marcelo Zuna, Eddie Rosario's started to put some things together at the plate over the last couple of months. I know in the field, though, on Saturday, it was a rough one for Eddie, and he also had to leave with a hamstring ailment that's going to keep him out for at least a few days. But otherwise, looking up and down that lineup, you've got seven, eight guys on pace for 20-plus home runs five of them on pace for 30-plus home runs, and at least three of them on pace for 40-plus home runs. This is a lineup that just absolutely mashes, and Matt Olson has been in the midst of all of that. He was also part of a pretty cool moment for the Atlanta Braves in the All-Star game. You flash back to Tuesday. It was the fifth inning, and a lot had been asked about this. We had discussed it as the Braves contingent here in Atlanta, but would it happen? The entire Braves infield is going to be there, but will Philadelphia manager Rob Thompson look at it and say, let's give these guys a moment? You know, let's give our division rival just a little bit. And he did. And, and these kind of things typically happen in the All-Star game. Everybody is kind of taking a team approach. And, hey, the National League won. So whatever the approach was, they might want to stick with it for a while. Just maybe ditch those uniforms. Those were terrible. But you had Austin Riley third. The starter for shortstop in the National League was Orlando Arcia, one of the great stories of the first half as well. Ozzie Alpes and Matt Olson all took the field in the fifth inning. Rangers were able to pull that off a little bit earlier in the game, so that was pretty cool. I mean, the Rangers had pretty nice all-star contingent themselves, especially on the starting variety. Uh, but you got to see the Braves do something that very few clubs have been able to do an entire infield. Will Smith was in the game behind the plate, so Sean Murphy didn't get to take part in the full-on Braves infield all the way around and have a battery because neither Bryce Elder nor Spencer Strider were pitching in the game, so you weren't able to have the full-on Braves experience. But again, a win for the National League, and Austin Riley at third base. I, I know there have been some conversations about the season offensively being uneven for him, a lot of ups and downs, but and he was picking it at the hot corner in the All-Star game. Made an, an outstanding double play. Made a great play coming in. Take away an infield hit. Pretty good-looking stuff. Talked a little bit about the Braves' offense and the first-inning runs that they put up. Matt Olson's grand slam made it 95 runs in 92 games as far as the first inning is concerned. Most by any MLB team in any inning all season long. And it's a record for first-inning runs, if you're curious, in Major League Baseball history is 160 set by the 1950 Boston Red Sox. The Braves, as of Sunday, they didn't score in the first inning against the White Sox, and they didn't score very much against Chicago either, but the Braves are on pace for 168 first-inning runs. It's obscure, but I love obscure stats, especially if they are one of the things that kind of indicates that you're a winning club that gets out in front more often because we've been tracking what's the record when the team scores first for about as long as I can remember in baseball, and it's usually a pretty good trend of a winning club, and the Braves are just absolutely tremendous at doing that. But the Braves and their run scoring is just a big reason why they are who they are. So as we look for the opportunity to make this club a little bit better over the course of the future, you have to look to the Major League Baseball draft. I think that's an opportunity to continue to build. And the Braves, if you look at their minor league system, and Jeff Potts of Baseball America is going to join me a little bit later, and we'll get all inside of this Braves draft class and, of course, some of the strategy and the calculus that goes into your draft spending and using that spending pool and you know, trying to make it all fit. 
But when you become a winning club the way that the Braves have, typically, I mean, I think the Dodgers are maybe an outlier on this, but a lot of your great prospects, they graduate to the big leagues and they become stars. Look all around the Braves infield and outfield and the pitching staff. You got a whole bunch of draft picks and prospects that came up through the Braves system and became stars. Whether you're talking about Max Fried, who they got in a trade as a prospect from the Padres. He grew up in the Braves farm system. Ron Lacuna Jr., Ozzie Albies, Austin Riley. I mean, the list goes on. A lot of key players. But the 2023 draft, that's one that the Braves, I think, were looking forward to kind of start to reload a farm system that had really started to, and even with respect to Spencer Strider and, of course, Michael Harris, who won the Rookie of the Year last year, even with respect to those guys really coming up and putting the Braves on the map again as a developmental organization, well, it's not really running dry, but not quite the same amount of talent that we saw over the course of that rebuild. So the Braves went with a college right-hander with their first pick and their second pick and their third pick, if you're curious. They went with some college arms. I'm not surprised by that. 19 of the 21 players they drafted were from the college ranks, but Hurston Waldrop is a right-hander out of the University of Florida, Atlanta-area kid, very excited in you know, joining the organization he grew up watching. I had a chance to catch up with him on Saturday at Truist Park. I got to talk to him about a variety of things, but one thing I had to know about was the splitter because the Braves, when they drafted him, Ronit Shaw, the number one thing he said, he's their assistant director of amateur scouting. We think this is a pitch that could get major leaguers out right now. I mean, it's been a great experience, uh, you know, from arriving here and, you know, being selected and everything from the from the start. So it's all been kind of surreal. And, um, you know, it's one of my biggest goals in life. So to be able to be here and take it all in and enjoy the moment, it's pretty awesome. You said you grew up a Braves fan, being from around the area. What are kind of your earliest memories of this team and what's it mean to put on that jersey? Yeah, so, I mean, I remember being at Turner Field uh, when I was younger. Uh, actually, one of, uh, one of my 10-year go-to-day memories is walking on Turner Field for the first time and uh, with a, with one of my travel teams. So, I mean, just seeing, you know, growing up in the state of Georgia, and um, it's it's all just been a – it's a dream come true, but also a big goal to be here and to finally get the road going. So, yeah, I mean, growing up a Braves fan and, uh, you know, just finally getting here and – you know, realizing, you know, it's, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is, this is going to be my home for a few years, hopefully. So, you know, just uh, being able to take all this in and, you know, it's a goal of mine, lifelong goal to be here and to play at this level. So uh, to get here and get the road going, it's pretty awesome. The arsenal that you're working with includes that splitter, which has gotten a lot of rave reviews. How did you come across that pitch and how have you perfected that pitch, I guess, over the last couple of years to make it the weapon that it is? Yeah, so I, I pretty much pitched the whole year without it last year. I was able to, you know, really hone in on my other three pitches and then, you know, decided I needed that fourth pitch, needed a, needed something to get left-handed hitters out, which was why I started throwing it. So um, watched a YouTube video from Kevin Gosman talking to Pitching Ninja. Uh, went out in the bullpen that week, threw like four or five of them, went out in the game that next weekend, threw a couple, and then uh, took off from there. I was, I was averaging like 25% with usage. So, uh, yeah, it turned into a – a heavy used pitch pretty quick. It's pretty amazing to think that you can jump on YouTube. I mean, I don't throw 95 miles an hour. I'll go ahead and put that caveat on there. But you can learn a new pitch grip, go out there, throw it a handful of times in a bullpen, and then go right into game action with it. And that is what Hurston Waldrop did with the splitter grip. And I posted this on Twitter. You can check it out as well, the video of uh, Pitching Ninja talking to Kevin Gosman about his ridiculous split-finger fastball. Well, it helped out a Braves draftee, and we'll see exactly what he's able to do with it. But Hurston Waldrop was out at the ballpark yesterday. Cool to catch up with him. And, of course, we got a lot of draft talk to get to a little bit later with Jeff Ponce of Baseball America. But when we come back, I'm going to talk to a Braves great about some of his best years, some of his all-star memories, and get his thoughts on Ronald Acuna Jr., who may be having a year the likes of which we have never seen before. 
Dale Murphy joins the show next as From the Diamond continues here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday as we wrap up a week that was for the Braves and we're not too far removed from the All-Star Game, which honestly, if you're a National League fan, a Braves fan, there haven't really been as many things to look forward to or enjoy, I think, as much as we saw in the 2023 All-Star Game. You had eight Atlanta Braves. The National League picked up a rare victory as well. And while the Braves weren't slugging their way to a win in that particular game, there were some highlights. There were some moments, and it was very cool to see the entire Braves infield all together for the National League there for at least a little bit. But putting all of that aside, as you look back in Braves history and think about All-Stars and you think about MVPs, as much as we talk about Ronald Acuna Jr. on that path, on that trajectory here in 2023, there has been no Braves player, I think, more synonymous with the Most Valuable Player Award than my next guest right here, right now on From the Diamond. It's Dale Murphy, the Braves great, who won the MVP not once but twice, 1982 and 1983, as part of a Braves club that was known as America's Team, for those of us who grew up on TBS way back in the 1980s. Murph, I appreciate you making the time, and I guess I'll ask you first off, because again, the All-Star Game was just this past week. What do you think about, what do you reflect on from being in the All-Star Game? Because you got to play in quite a few of these things, and I think it's always fun to enjoy what the All-Star Game brings to us uh, from the fan perspective. Yeah, it is. Uh, first of all, Grant, thanks for having me on. It's always a, a great time of year, and I was lucky enough to get in seven of them. It's still a great game, and a couple of memories is not everybody got in the game. Uh, my first game, uh, I know they try to play everybody now, but that wasn't the case. Chuck Tanner got me in the game. Uh, Jose Cruz did not get in the game. And uh, I don't know who else didn't get in the game, but, you know, I got in that bat, got in the game, I think, in the field for a couple innings, maybe one. And so I was really lucky, my first one, uh, to get in the game. So it it was a very memorable night, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, because you're out there with a lot of guys that you have seen from afar. You've competed against, obviously, for your team, but then you kind of got to look at the American League, and yeah, otherwise you didn't really get to see those guys over the course of the season unless you met in October. But like you said, a lot has changed in this game. I'm curious because you played in quite a few All-Star games, and you did pretty well in that whole fan voting thing, which has been going on for quite some time. What are some of your other favorite All-Star memories? Because I know you've got a few, and including, I believe, a long ball that was mixed all up in there as well. Uh, yeah, I got a home run. Uh, the one in San Francisco, I think, was uh, 84. <laughs> it's weird how things come to your mind, Grant, and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm not sure if that's right, but I think it was 84 uh, in San Francisco. Uh, great memory there. Um, I got a few coming to mind All-Star games. One is uh, Pete Rose told me, I was with Ray Knight. We were walking out to the bench in the tunnel there between uh, the clubhouse and the bench. And Pete Rose stopped uh, Ray Knight and I and said, uh, hey, if you guys get in the game today, don't do anything different than you would during the regular season. So it's like I immediately thought of him running over Ray Fossey. Uh, I think, Grant, I participated in, I think it was the first all-star game home run derby in Minnesota. Yeah, And people have told me it was the first one, and it was just thrown together. I don't know if they asked me the day before, or that would have been on our workout day. And just like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And it was kind of an inning thing. I think we played three innings. Mm -hmm. I hit a few home runs. The American League won, as I remember. Tom Brunanski, I think, hit a home run to win it for the American League. So we didn't really play individually. We played you know, for the, our leagues, and uh, people have said that was the first one. And uh, 
I really the home run in San Francisco p- played in yeah played in we got beat we had quite a streak going we got beat in eighty three I think was it Grant in uh, Comiskey mm-hmm. Atley Hammaker was in oh gosh I want to say Fred Lynn hit a grand slam and we had a streak going there you know without interleague play and without really facing each other till the All Star game or the World Series there was a lot on the line a lot of pride on the line just because our leagues were so separate. Absolutely. Chatting with Dale Murphy here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. He joins me on the WadeFord.com hotline on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Let me ask you a little bit about something I'm kind of interested in because there's some parallels to what's going on with the Braves today. They've got Ronald Acuna Jr. playing such an outstanding level of baseball. And when you talk about uh, playing at that level, you're going to get some recognition. And when you do, typically, have a season the way that he's having, you've got a very good chance to win the Most Valuable Player Award. That's something that you won not once but twice. 1982 was the first of those two. When you look back on that, getting an honor like that, putting together a season like you did as a team, of course, I'm sure was a big part of that and a big point of pride for you in having a career year to that point. Then to follow it up in 1983 with a second one, uh, when you reflect on those Most Valuable Player Awards, being able to win a pair of those, uh, what do you remember most about those? And Whatever it was during those seasons or perhaps just some things that you guys were able to accomplish after working very hard to start turning things around for the Braves. Yeah, it, it, you know, the first one kind of snuck up on me, really, Grant. I mean, when you look at my numbers in 82, they don't jump out at you. And I think that's one of the things, unless you have a completely dominating year, sometimes MVP awards are kind of the right time, the right year. Statistically, I thought I was in the running in 82. Uh, and then 83, you know, I you know, stole 30 bases, hit 30 home runs, and probably my best all-around year and knew I had another shot. And so... It's kind of a combination of things. You know, we started playing good. The team started playing good. Getting to the ballpark was fun. Uh, prior to that, it wasn't that much fun. You know, uh, we were having fun. We were having good crowds. Uh, Joe Torrey and I really related well. He communicated. He was really involved in my hitting. And we had the hitting coaches. It's just that back then, and especially from Joe Torrey, a guy that won the, the batting title, and we really related really well. Mm-hmm. And he just uh, he kind of opened my career, especially starting to steal bases. I had never thought of myself as a base stealer. You know, I always say Bobby got me to the big leagues, really found a position for me, but Joe Torrey kind of helped me believe I could be a complete player, which really made my career. You think about MVPs and being able to win is unusual to a certain degree, but I'm not trying to downplay it. It's just sometimes it's circumstances and who you're going against. I think about Hank Aaron all the time winning one MVP, mm-hmm. and, and it's just, a you know, a different – level of competition and and so you know i was fortunate to play and i had my best years i didn't get hurt you know during quite a few stretches about four or five years and uh team was good it's just something that uh kind of in the flow i guess is the best way to put it you just kind of get there you're not thinking too much i was healthy and just a combination of a lot of things led to my best years uh ronald acuna jr I, i don't even know how to quantify his numbers and statistics and what he's doing yeah obviously he's already got 40 stolen bases and he's he's on his way to hitting 40 home runs that's just a different level i don't even know how to relate to what he's doing uh his strikeouts are down uh his on base percentage i mean starting off the first inning this team i think the odds are uh, good with the team that scores first mm-hmm. and so this is a real good team to get the first runs across uh and Ronald's been doing it all. It looks like matured. 
in so many ways. Uh, I just, I don't know how to describe it. Just can kind of sense that he's really comfortable and very confident and knows if he doesn't hit a home run, it doesn't do all this stuff that he's a gold glover in the outfield. I would have to say, I don't know who's, who his competition is, but I mean, this is just next level numbers he's putting up. Yeah, it is. When you talk about the five tool players, Ron Lacuna Jr. should probably be the illustration if you were to look that up in the baseball dictionary. But flashing back to 1983, you brought this up. It was a special season for you in a number of different ways. And you joined the 3030 Club that year, something that I believe at that time only the great Hank Aaron had done in a Braves uniform before you accomplished it. Uh, having done this, I mean, 3030 is such an interesting accomplishment overall because of what it requires, both the power and the speed and the ability, obviously, to steal those bases. When did you become aware of it being a possibility, or was it a goal that you set from day one that year to try to join the 30-30 club? Well, it's funny. After the 82 season, I remember, I think it was after the playoffs were over or something, and we're, you know, saying goodbye, and everybody's, you know, trying to get over the, you know, getting swept by the Cardinals. Anyway, I specifically remember Bob Walk coming up to me. He goes, great year, Murph. Good luck. Have a good offseason. Next year, you're going to be a 30-30 guy. And I was like, well, I never even thought about that. Wow. So, you know, I think I stole 30 on the nose. And I think in 84, my numbers started going down. I mean, I didn't have the raw speed to keep the numbers up. I kind of snuck up on everybody. I had decent speed. And I, I like I say, Joe Torrey just changed my perception of what I could do on the field. And so when he gave me the green light, you know, for three years, I never got a steal sign. I could go at any time. Wow. And when you have that, trust i was studying pitchers i was studying the I, I knew what the score of the game was i knew the situation and i tried to be smart about it i wasn't smart every time but uh it, it i thought about it a lot more and uh, you know new pitchers i could get a good jump on whereas in the previous years i didn't even look at the pitchers that much so i really credit joe tory was just giving me the idea that uh you know over the course of 162 games you could steal some bases and then when I got close to stealing the 30th, you know, I obviously started becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, it might have been the last weekend. I can't remember, but it, it was close to the, you know, the last week. I know that. That, of course, is the voice of Braves great Dale Murphy, who joins me here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. As you look back at 1983, I know you mentioned 1982 that the MVP award, getting that kind of snuck up on you. Was it an equal or greater surprise that you won that award in back-to-back -back years? Because that's something that a lot of players would be happy to win one, but to win two, that is really saying something about the level at which you were playing at a time in which there were plenty, I think, of capable MVP candidates across baseball, across the National League in particular. Yeah, it. I don't know how to describe how I was feeling. It was just... Uh, you know, I tried to figure out, okay, so I just won two MVPs, you know, is this going to motivate me or is this going to kind of slow me down? I mean, are expectations getting too high? So I just kind of really had to sit down and say, okay, look, you won these things, you've had some good years, but kind of use it to motivate yourself, you know, to work even harder. I just really tried to use it as a motivation thing during the offseason. Yeah. Stay in shape, keep working hard, don't rest. Uh, keep the same approach, you know, because I knew, it, like I say, they're subjective. It's kind of the right time, right place, right year. You know, just don't think this is automatic and all you got to do is throw your glove out there and things are going to work out. So I used it to concentrate really on on uh, 
just being prepared. And if I could be ready, be prepared, be in good shape. And then I, I didn't really have to worry about what was going to happen during the year because I was ready to go and I was motivated. And so I tried to use those, you know, psychologically that way instead of, you know, trying to guard against complacency because, you know, these things happened. And so I said, look, when in another MVP, I don't know, but I'm going to prepare the same. I'm going to be exactly the same and ready to go as I was these past two years. Do you feel like as you look at your career and, and particular years, maybe how you were feeling in those years, it was 1983 the greatest year that you had, statistically speaking, or just on a personal level? I know there's a lot of team goals and you know more winning happened in different years and those kinds of things, but... 1983 was a year in which you joined the 30-30 club. You set a team record for runs scored. All of those things were just tied up in there. Do you feel like that was not the high water mark, but maybe the best all-around season that you were able to put together? Absolutely. I just, and the team, I, we didn't win it that year, but we were competitive all year, you know, in the race. You know, I hit 44 home runs in 87, but there's nothing like being in a race, uh, you know, with a chance to win it. Again, it's it, it was just the excitement around the city, the team, the organization. You know, 82 was fun because we won the division. But as far as just being in the zone and, you know, not thinking too much, that was the year that I always remember that it was just, like I said earlier, I think I was, you know, I was in a flow that, uh, you know, five years earlier, I didn't even know what that was like, you know, but I, I really felt that things were flowing. And show up to the ballpark, I felt good, I felt strong, and and uh, we were competitive. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of great memories in those, I think, mid-'80s teams especially and some awards that came your way at that time. And uh, just a time in Braves baseball, I know for a lot of us out there that grew up on the 80s Braves that we look back on extremely fondly. I mean, every time we see one of those powder blue uniforms, it's hard not to get a little bit of a different feeling about the Atlanta Braves that – you know, maybe they ought to dust those things off and bring them back at some point. But, uh, Dale, I appreciate all your time, as always. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks for joining the show, and uh, look forward to catching up down the line. Thanks, Grant. I always love to be on with you anytime. My thanks, as always, to Braves great Dale Murphy for making time to join the show. Always great to chat with him, and kind of fun to take that walk down memory lane for a guy who won an MVP award in back-to-back years and what we're watching in 2023. And I think Murph said it himself, it's hard to – Really wrap your head around the kind of season that Ron Lacuna Jr. is having, but I can tell you this, we're all enjoying watching it, the show that he's putting on, and looking forward to seeing what's ahead in the second half. Speaking of which, we've got all kinds of things to talk about as baseball is in the second half. The draft is behind us. The trade deadline's in front of us. We're going to talk about some of the biggest stories across all of Major League Baseball as we take our trip around the big leagues. It happens next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond. Welcome back in to From the Diamond, hour number two of the show. I'm Grant McCauley. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios in Midtown as we wrap up the weekend and get ourselves really, I think, off and running in the second half. And there's a lot of things going on, not just for the Atlanta Braves, but across the world of baseball as we gear up for the next big mile marker of every regular season. Get through that all-star break. Then you got the trade deadline right around the corner, and that's where we're going to start with this one because I don't know that I've gone too terribly far or too long in between having conversations with various people, whether it's call-ins, at the ballpark, on Twitter, whatever it is. I mean, everybody wants to know about the trade speculation that is surrounding Shohei Otani. It is captivating to think about a player of this talent and caliber. I mean, not just 
the free agency, which I've said many times. I mean, it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. If Shohei Otani closes out this season in the way that he has the last couple of years, he's got a chance to win an MVP. He's got a chance to continue to do this unicorn thing. That's the term that, you know, has been put on him. It's just a mythical creature, a mythical being in, in this case, because he is a top starting pitcher and a top slugger in all of baseball. He's leading Major League Baseball in home runs. Uh, he is not allowing too many home runs himself. He's not allowing opposing hitters to get too comfortable in that old batter's box there. This is a guy that is a talent, the likes of which, before we had seen what he could do, we had not even really heard about something like this. And it's pretty incredible to think where this could be in the next couple of weeks when you think about Otani perhaps putting on a different uniform than the Los Angeles Angels. And I, I don't know that this is necessarily going to be a shoe in It continues to kind of burn very slowly, but the reports continue to circulate. And then John Morosi of uh, MLB Network this time around was saying that, well, the Angels are leaving the door open for the possibility of discussing a deal, which sounds like some real legalese. But yeah, I mean, if your phone's going to ring and somebody's going to make you an offer, you you owe it to yourself, I think, to at least listen. And the reasons why for the Shohei Otani thing are are manyfold for this Angels club because, unfortunately, in the last couple of weeks, a season that looked like they might have a chance at a wild card in the American League has took a turn for the worse. You got Mike Trout out for at least one to two months with a broken hammock bone. I don't know how much winning the Angels are going to be able to do minus Mike Trout in the midst of the struggles that they were having outside of that. That's just, you know, it's adding injury to insult or both. Uh, but the Angels... They haven't been able to play to the level that they need to in order to go into the trade deadline, I think, and feel comfortable about needing to do some buying rather than thinking about doing some selling. So with Trout out with that fractured hammock bone and their record falling to around 500, 45 and 46 in fourth place in the American League West. And that's to say nothing for what's going on in the American League East. Because if you want to see what the path to the playoffs is to the wild card, you're going to have to look down the American League East standings. The Central is what it is. If the Angels were in the Central, they could really entertain the opportunity of kind of holding, you know, standing pat, maybe adding a piece or two and trying to make a run at that Central title. But that's not how geography works, and that's not the division that they're in. So they're in the West, and they're in fourth place there. They would be well into the cellar of the American League East, and then the expanded playoff spots don't really help you out at that point. So what is the cost of a Shohei Otani trade if you're the club out there looking for him? Well, according to these reports, Multiple top 100 prospects are what's going to pique the interest of the Los Angeles Angels, to which I say, obviously. Multiple top 100 prospects in all of baseball should be something they could listen to because if you think about free agency, as far as getting a deal done with Shohei Otani, but all they're going to get is draft pick compensation if they give him the qualifying offer and he goes into free agency. I think you might be better served to really start thinking about one of two things. Either you're already Moreno and you're going to back up the Brinks truck and go ahead and offer Shohei Otani $550 or $600 million and hope he takes it. Or you're going to need to go ahead and make that deal and try to get multiple prospects to make your club better over the long haul. And there have been other people talking about this just kind of across the baseball discussion uh, that I see on social media and beyond. Well, if they trade Shohei Otani, do they have to turn around and trade Mike Trout too? And that's an interesting conversation to have as well. You know, at that point, are you an Angels club that needs to just kind of go into a rebuild? And if you do... Well, one of the best players of your generation is already gone. Maybe you should trade the other best player of this generation, which is still mind-boggling to think about having two of the best players in the last 50, 75, 100 years of baseball and not being able to do the kind of winning that I'm sure that they had in mind. But uh, it will be interesting to see where this Otani thing goes. Meanwhile, another interesting story that was happening was over the All-Star break. 
just before the All-Star Game, as a matter of fact. The Major League Baseball Draft of 2023. It's in Seattle, so there was only one man to announce the number one overall pick. His name, George Kenneth Griffey Jr. Roll that wonderful clip of Rob Manfred announcing the kid. Tonight, we welcome Ken to the stage here in Seattle, where it all started, and invite the former number one overall draft pick to officially announce tonight's number one pick. With the first pick of the 2023 MLB Draft, the Pittsburgh Pirates pick Paul Skeens, right-handed pitcher from LSU. Yeah, we saw some draft history. That's the voice of Ken Griffey Jr., who was on hand in Seattle to announce the number one overall pick because that's what Ken Griffey Jr. was way, way back in 1987. So uh, Paul Skeens, who was part of LSU's national title team as the Tigers just wrapped that thing up a few weeks ago, they made a little bit of history because it wasn't just Paul Skeens who was drafted number one overall. It was his teammate, Dylan Cruz, who was picked number two overall by the Washington Nationals. First time that teammates had ever been picked one and two in the Major League Baseball draft, which goes all the way back to 1965. Uh, so Skeens is now a Pittsburgh Pirate, and this is a kid that has been called maybe the best college pitcher since Steven Strasburg. I mean, it was hard to go on social media if you're a baseball fan and not see what this kid was doing and not be impressed with the run that he was on with LSU. Let's hear Paul Skeens talking about his surreal moment of being the number one overall pick in the 2023 draft, courtesy of MLB Network. Absolutely amazing. Can't even really put it in words. Uh, I think it's going to take me a little bit of time to process it, but it feels like, you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of, you know, surrounding myself with the right people and doing the right thing for a long period of time. And it feels like something good really happened. Yeah, I mean, it's all of those things, and it was definitely something good that's happened, and the bonus that you get as a number one overall pick is not a bad way to start your pro career. But if you are the Pittsburgh Pirates, I mean, they were ultimately in the, I guess, scenario of if they didn't feel like they could sign Dylan Cruz, I mean, if you're Pittsburgh, you're not going to be able to go out and pay for an ace that's going to come pitch for the Pirates at PNC Park because, well, they're not going to pay an ace to do that. So you're going to have to make your own, I guess is what I'm saying. And that's exactly what Paul Skeens has a chance to be as a college pitcher with his pedigree and his talent. He could be on a fast track to the major leagues. We could see him sometime very soon. Dylan Cruz, meanwhile, going to the Washington Nationals, uh, according to Mike Exisa of CBS Sports, arguably the best draft prospect since Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper and the Washington Nationals. That sounded like a a pretty good marriage a while ago, and they're going to try it again with Dylan Cruz, an extremely, extremely talented hitter that they're going to look to put into a lineup for a club that is attempting to rebuild and uh, as you look at teammates who have been drafted just in the top three picks overall, in case you're curious about this, I mentioned no one's ever gone one and two before. 1978, the Braves took Bob Horner out of Arizona State, number one overall. Hubie Brooks went to the Mets at number three out of Arizona State as well, so a couple of teammates in the top three picks. In 2011, so not that long ago, Garrett Cole was taken by the Pirates out of UCLA, number one overall. Trevor Bauer went number three overall to the Arizona Diamondbacks and. Uh, but that's what's going on with the Major League Baseball draft. A really cool thing to see teammates go one and two in the draft for sure. Speaking of the All-Star game, Elias Diaz, first Rockies catcher ever to be an All-Star in the National League. Well, he picked up MVP honors at T-Mobile Park with a go-ahead two-run home run. It came off Felix Bautista in the eighth inning, and the National League grabbed a 3-2 victory as a result of that and picked up its first All-Star win did the National League since 2012. And we're not going to get into the fashion choice that Major League Baseball had, particularly for the National League uniforms, but what a moment for Elias Diaz, who was, you know, knowing coming in that there might be an opportunity for him to jump in as a DH or, you know, perhaps you know, late into the game he would get a chance to play. That was kind of how they were working out the playing time for all those players. But 
Orlando Arcia was hanging around. If you watch the game, it was really cool to see he and Ozzy Albies kind of acting as they do a lot of times in the Braves dugout. You'll see this. It's kind of the hype men, getting everybody going down at the end of that dugout. And Elias Diaz talked with the media after winning this award, and he shared something pretty interesting about winning the MVP and about a little bit of advice that he got from Orlando Arcia before hitting the go-ahead and, as it turned out, game-winning home run. Take a listen to this. It's feeling amazing. It's feeling great. I never thought that the, this can happen, but now it happened. <laughs> so it's feeling great. And what did Orlando Arcia end up saying to you? He said to me, hey, don't worry, you're going to hit a homer uh, and, and you're going to be there. You're going to win the MVP. It's crazy. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's absolutely crazy. I mean, think about that. Not only are you going to hit a home run, you're going to be the MVP. I mean, Orlando Arcia, in addition to all the other things and the ways he's amazed us this year as the Braves, just a starting shortstop and being an all-star and getting his extension earlier this year and kind of coming out of nowhere to lock down a position that most people weren't really ready to hand over to him, I did not know that he might also be able to see the future. So uh, hopefully he sees good things for the Braves' future over the course of the rest of the year. But a great moment for Diaz and for the National League. I mean, this is a pretty rare thing. You have to go back to 1995 to find the last time that an NL player had a go-ahead home run in the eighth inning or later. That was Jeff Conine. And then prior to that, 1981, it was Hall of Famer Mike Schmidt. So this hasn't happened too many times just in my lifetime, not to date myself. But, you know, the National League has not had the best run in the All-Star game over the past 25 or 30 years. That is for sure. Meanwhile, and some things that are going on as we approach that halfway point, a lot of teams are looking at their coaching staffs and trying to make a decision on ways to kickstart their club and the New York Yankees. Well, they're a team that has some pretty high expectations, and they decided to go ahead and make a change at hitting coach. Dylan Lawson was dismissed on Sunday just prior to the All-Star game, and Sean Casey leaving the broadcast field where he's been with MLB Network for 15 years, former teammate of manager Aaron Boone. Both those guys played together with the Reds. The Yankees were interested in bringing Casey in over the course of the offseason, but he declined to do that over the time, citing medical reasons for his fiance, who was dealing with breast cancer at the time. But as things kind of improved in, in that field, which first and foremost, that's a good thing, he was able to reconsider this job when it was offered to him to be the hitting coach for the New York Yankees. You talk about a job with a lot of pressure. I mean, there's a lot of talent on that Yankees club. I mean, Aaron Judge is out right now, but you still got plenty of other hitters, but a lot of responsibility for the hitting coach, whether that's realistic expectations or otherwise. And Sean Casey doesn't really have any coaching experience to speak of, but he does have a long major league career. He was a very good hitter and said, I don't feel intimidated at all. I don't feel like there's going to be a learning curve, and I feel like I'm going to be ready to connect with some big league hitters. That's what he told the New York Press upon taking that job. And Boom was excited again. This was his former teammate. Casey was a three-time All-Star, a 300 career hitter. So, you know, he's got some accolades, and we'll see what he's able to do. And if there is a Sean Casey effect in New York, and if so, what can it do for the New York club in the standings? Because that American League East, that's going to be a tough race. you got the Rays, and you got this other team, the Orioles. The comeback kids is kind of what they're turning into. They just won their seventh consecutive game on Saturday. They just continue to amaze, I think, just built on the big step forward that they took in 2022 as one of the surprise teams just to have a 500 season. Well, now, I mean, they're on a run that could push them into the postseason, and they might be poised to make a little bit of noise at the trade deadline as well, see what they can add to a club that has just continued to stay right there in the thick of that race and is trying to track down the Tampa Bay Rays. With the winning streak going to seven on Saturday, the Orioles are now 56-35. and 35. So 21 games, over 500, a five-game cushion in the American League wildcard standings, and only two games behind the Rays, who we just saw not long ago playing the Braves down in Tampa Bay. The Rays have kind of run into a rough patch here in July.
So all of a sudden, the American League East might be open for business if the Orioles win the East. That'll be one of the great stories of 2023, that's for sure. And one other little story before we get out of here. Over in Philadelphia, so not far from the Baltimore area, Bryce Harper is going to be returning to the field, but not where you think he would. Not in the outfield. He could be playing some first base. It could happen this week. After more than a year that he has spent at DH, of course, he had Tommy John surgery, so you knew that the rehab from that was going to be long, and even for a position player, was going to keep him off the field for a bit. Well, he came back. He's been the DH for quite some time for the Phillies, and now he could be playing a little bit of first base, which means Kyle Schwarber could see some more time at DH, so it gives the Phillies a little bit more options, and We'll see how that whole thing plays out. But for Bryce Harper, just another step in getting himself back to where he wants to be uh, when it comes to on the field and trying to help the Phillies out in the National League wildcard race. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the Braves draft class. Jeff Potts of Baseball America is going to join me to talk all about that. It's a pretty interesting class. A lot of good discussion coming up. This is from the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grandma Coley for more from the Diamond. Brought to you by Mark Spain Real Estate. Get a guaranteed offer from Mark Spain Real Estate, 855-299-SOL. On Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios, as always. And we continue our number two of the show with a little bit of draft talk because, goodness knows, we got a big heap and helping of the draft right in the middle of the All-Star Game festivities because that's when Major League Baseball decided to serve it to us. Putting all of that aside, though, it is fun to welcome a new draft class in, and I think there are some prospects coming into the Braves system that are going to be fun to talk about and fun to watch mature and I think it's always a good time to talk about prospects and go down on the farm and see what the future is for any franchise. And for the Braves, the farm system, well, it's been a pretty bright spot for quite some time, but it might have been a little bit depleted by all the winning the Braves have been doing the last few years, to which you might say, well, winning is the whole point. And I would tell you, you're exactly right. Uh, let's put all that aside and let me welcome Jeff Ponce of Baseball America into the show. He covers the draft, was out at the All-Star Game in Seattle, and has a lot of great insights on the Braves system, in particular this draft class of 21 players that is joining the Atlanta organization. Jeff, I appreciate you making some time to join me for what is always an exciting time of year, although it kind of changed on us not long ago where we went from the June draft to now the July draft, which is all wrapped up in the All-Star Week. I still don't know how I feel about it, but I do know this. I'm always excited to talk about a new draft class, so I look forward to chatting about it with you. Yeah, absolutely. It has definitely been an adjustment, I think, for those of us that cover the draft in June. Um, a lot of my work on the draft side of things is is on the Cape Cod League because I'm here in New England based in Massachusetts. So, you know, I, over the last few years, I've probably seen 20 to 35 Cape games uh, a, a season. So I see a lot of these players mm -hmm. prior to their draft spring, um, and the nature of it now with the with the pre-draft guys, there's even some guys that are on this list that, uh, you know, with the Braves that I saw prior to the draft this summer. Yeah. So I have some recent looks on a few as well. So it's a it's a different animal. I think we're all starting to adjust to it a little bit more now. Um, certainly a great event having everything out there. You know, I was fortunate enough the last two years to be out in All-Star Weekend, out at the draft, be able to cover it in person. Um, so that's a lot of fun, you know, for sure. But yeah. uh I think many within the game would still hope that it was in June, just was a lot cleaner in terms of how that all worked. And yeah. we're used to it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you get used to something. I've heard this and I've used this on the show a lot. I've used this in life a lot. People don't like change. They like improvement. So if they don't feel like it's that, then maybe they're not going to warm up to it so quickly. But for the Braves and for their minor league system, the draft is the opportunity for improvement. And they let off this draft with a first round college arm 
in Hurston Waldrop out of the University of Florida. Uh, talked to Ronit Shah after that pick, and he kind of discussed what exactly it was the Braves were looking at there. But what jumped out to me is not just the pure stuff, but he said that splitter that Waldrop has may be the best secondary pitch that was available in the draft. How did you size up Waldrop and this pick for the Atlanta Braves? Yeah, I thought it was a great pick, um, especially to get Waldrop later in the first round at 24, where I think most people were mocking him somewhere in the middle of the first round. Mm-hmm. Um, if a team believed enough in being being able to optimize not only his pitch mix and his usage, which is something we saw later on in the season with Florida sort of improve. He was very fastball heavy earlier in the year, started to see more successes. He started to lean into those secondaries because that splitter is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also has two really good breaking ball shapes. Um, so he kind of falls within that modern pitcher mentality where throw your fastball less, lean in on your secondaries because they are your best pitches. Um, I think for player and for organization, this is sort of a dream scenario for Waldrip. And we look at how the Braves have developed pitching over the last few years. And he's somebody that coming from a school like Florida, which is a very competitive winning program Mm -hmm. within the collegiate ranks, I'm not sure that they're necessarily the best pitching development program you know, those those are sort of divergent mentalities in terms of winning games versus developing yeah. the best talents that you have. Um, I've even heard some people go as far as to say as, you know, he was a guy that transferred from southern Mississippi to Florida last year looking for an opportunity to play in those big games and win. Certainly got those opportunities, but you have to wonder if, you know, he was beating up on mid-major competition, <laughs> what the numbers would have been like, would they have been different, you know, would he have gone a little bit further? So, I think just in terms of the way everything sh- shook out, it's really good for the Braves. It's good for Waldrop as well because he now ends up in an organization that I think in recent years has done a really good job of optimizing the pitchers that they've brought in, at least the ones they haven't traded. Yeah, most definitely. And, of course, the Braves have leaned very pitching heavy in their draft. That's not surprising to see yet again here in 2023. Uh, Atlanta's second rounder, though, might have confused a few folks just you know looking at it at face value and Drew Hackenberg. He's part of an ultra-athletic family, and it seems like the Braves might be siding with that a little bit more over the traditional scouting looks. Given the numbers, they don't really jump off the page, but there's got to be something there in terms of just the both the tangibles and maybe the intangibles the Braves are hoping this kid has. Yeah, and I think if you look at the kind of season that Hackenberg had, um, was pretty good. You know, the numbers were strong in, in 2022, um, returned in, you know, while the ERA wasn't great in 2023, he plays in a park that is incredibly, um, you know, hitter slanted in mm-hmm. terms of <laughs> the way the ball flies at Virginia Tech. I think it's also a, a product of what we saw in college baseball this year, whether it was the bats, whether the ball is juicy in comparison to what it's been in okay. previous years, whatever it is that's at play. The offensive run environment was so crazy in college baseball this year that ERAs and a lot of those surface level baseball card kind of stats don't necessarily make sense. That being said, this is a guy that has, you know, a low to mid nineties sinking fastball, a slider that took a big step forward this year, a low 80 slider that generated, I think 47, 50% uh, whiff rate. So it's a, it's a swing and miss pitch. Um, Also has an upper eighties changeup. That's pretty good. That drives a lot of ground balls. Um, So he kind of has an interesting pitch mix and a way to get, through lineups he also was a draft eligible sophomore and when we think about that these are guys that have a little bit more leverage at draft time especially if they have that athleticism they have that projection um and i'm sure the braves and a lot of other teams are looking at that with hackenberg which is one of the reasons that waldrip 
funny enough, went under slot, which I think mm-hmm. a lot of people were surprised at. Hackenberg went over slot, and I think that was one of the reasons that that happened. Um, but another interesting arm and somebody that I think they could potentially develop, um, you know, with, with the way that their pitching development has been, how strong it's been over recent years, that Hackenberg might seem like an unusual pick, but I think when you peel back the layers of the onion a little bit here, there's some reason that he went where he did. Yeah, and the strategy for the class, you kind of touched on where the overslot, underslot deals and kind of making that math all work out. Uh, there's a little bit of calculus, we'll call it to that. Chatting with Jeff Potts of Baseball America here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the wadeford.com hotline as we recap the 2023 amateur draft. I almost called it the June draft again. I'm really going to break that habit at some point. Uh, let's talk about a compensation pick because who doesn't love one of those? Well, fans who didn't love seeing the player that left that got you the compensation pick. It was kind of a, I don't know, uh, the jury was out maybe at first on Dansby Swanson leaving, but Orlando Arcia seems to have quieted down a good contention of that crew. Uh, but uh, Kate Cooler seems like, you know, he could profile a little bit like Waldrop in terms of the stuff, uh, probably not quite on that level, clearly based on where the two were taken. But this is the pick the Braves got for Swanson signing with the Cubs. So maybe a few folks would like this story a bit more if they're able to see some things they like out of uh, Cade Cooler. So what can you tell us about this talented young writer? Sure. I would honestly go as far as to say, and I like the Waldrop pick. I, I don't mind the Hackenberg pick. I think Kate Cooler is the best pick that they made um, in this class. Uh, This is the best fastball metrically in the draft. Um, Mid-90s fastball up to 98 miles per hour. Um, He gets a ton of ride in life. Um, We've seen how important that's been with some of these pitchers that have come up, a guy like Brian Wu, somebody like Bryce Miller. Mm -hmm. Um, This is very much in the model of a pitcher that Seattle would have taken over the last couple of years at the scene a tremendous amount of success mid-major guy but i think we've seen these campbell campbell uh players have certainly taken to pro ball in recent years you know one that obviously uh has been a star made it all the way up to the big leagues and was hitting prior to his injury in zach netto um but they've had others as well seth johnson a few years ago back um was excellent during his time with tampa bay has an elbow injury was traded to the Orioles but I think you know when we're talking about Cooler he has an opportunity to potentially be the best pitcher that this program has developed um he's not the biggest guy you know mm-hmm. he's an undersized right-hander strong build though you know 215 pounds obviously you know he's got some strength to be able to you know average 94 miles per hour get that fastball up to 98 um you know it's a guy that averages if we're looking at induced vertical break numbers somewhere around 20 inches of induced vertical break so wow. that's an easy plus plus number yeah and it's legit um and this has been on tracking systems not just at campbell which is kind of has a history of being a little bit juiced but a few others um got a deep pitch mix you know i think the curveball and change up and cutter you know he's got to figure out what the true third pitch is there he certainly has a one-two punch with that fastball and that slider we've seen that work um you know i I, I don't want to say this is a Spencer Strider type of pick, but You're I think my the mind. upside here is that he could be somebody, you know, with a quality fastball slider combination that could maybe follow that sort of path, but maybe doesn't, you know, turn into the best pitcher in baseball. Sure. <laughs> I don't see that necessarily happening, but I do think this is a great pick. And this is the one of their top five round picks I would be the most excited about is, is Kate Kuehler and what he can turn into. I thought it was a great grab and, um, you got three really talented college arms here that they can develop at the top of the draft. So, um, you know, kudos to the Braves in terms of, you know, getting both all three of those guys and getting them signed. 
Yeah, and then getting them signed is obviously an important factor. But yeah, as you were talking about a cooler, it just started to sound like we were describing maybe Spencer Strider a few years ago. Don't want to put that kind of comp on anybody because, as you mentioned, it's kind of tough to become the major league strikeout leader before you've ever thrown a professional pitch, but a lot to be excited about with him. Uh, a couple of other questions for you. I know that this is a college-heavy draft for the Braves. I believe 19 of the 21 picks were all collegiate guys. So two prep players. Uh, back-to-back high school picks, actually, at number four and number five as far as rounds are concerned. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Garrett Ballman and Isaiah Drake? Because they certainly seem to have some upside, and the Braves, uh, they decided to pay them as such with some overslot deals. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're looking at uh, Ballman at a, a huge frame. You know, he's six foot eight, 240 pounds, um, you know, sort of what we would call a, a, a pronation profile, meaning it's more of an efficient fastball shape. Uh, with a changeup, um, you know, he's sitting 91 to 93 miles per hour for the most part. He's been up to 96. I think some of that fastball shape could probably be improved as well. That low 80s changeup um, tunnels really nicely off of the fastball, you know, sort of heavy fade and arm side movement on it. Gets pretty good tumble on it as well. It's a it's a, it's a, a good pitch. Um, you don't see a lot of high school players that have feel for the changeup the way Bauman does. Um, but I think he's a guy that, you know, you kind of project that out. Um, you want to see how the slider develops. It's a little flat and sweepy. Um, but, you know, if you can add a little bit of tilt to that pitch, maybe add a little bit of um, velocity onto not only the slider, but also mm-hmm. the four-seam fastball. Um, you know, you might see a guy here that can develop into a, a really interesting starting pitching prospect, especially when you consider his size and, you know, the potential strength and projection that's in that frame. It's probably just a matter of optimizing mechanics and yeah. spin efficiency on some of his pitches. But he's a really interesting one, you know, fastball uh, changeup guy with, you know, a chance to develop a better slider. We'll see how they do with that breaking ball development. As for Isaiah Drake, um, he's a standout athlete. Um, one of the guys that I, you know, work with pretty closely here. I have a player development podcast uh, that's hosted by a gentleman by the name of Matt Pajak and myself, Matt actually uh, is one of the owners of uh, Loden Sports up, uh, I think it's actually based in Colorado now, but um, Loden Sports does a lot of athletic testing for um, college programs, professional teams. They were involved Mm -hmm. with the PDP testing for many years, do a lot of other sports as well. And um, one of the things I sort of do with Matt is kind of go through players post-draft of, hey, who are the standout athletes? Who are the guys we got to keep an eye out for? Um, as athleticism and I think, you know, makeup are probably two of the things that it's tough for us to tangibly measure and understand. Yeah. Uh, but they're two elements that really impact upside. Um, either your body being able to physically in- perform, uh, excuse me, improve performance or just mentally, uh, being able to, you know, put in the work and do the things you need to do to perf- improve performance. I can't speak to Drake's makeup. I don't know him personally. I haven't been around him or interviewed the young man, uh, but I can say that in terms of athleticism, he's a standout athlete and, uh, an 80 grade runner. He's got plus raw power from the left side. So, you know, I think it's just a matter of him improving hitting ability. We've seen these sort of freaky athletes uh, make big jumps, you know, when they're in pro development programs. So I think Drake is one that you can really dream on. You know, when you're looking at this class, this could be the guy that pops. And we've seen that happen uh, over the last couple of years in the Brave system. 
certainly somebody like Michael Harris yep. comes to mind when we, mm-hmm. when we think about a player like this that maybe was you know outside the first few rounds and then develops into something pretty special. Von Grisham being another one. So I'm interested to see you know what the Braves do with Isaiah Drake because over the last couple of years they've had a fair amount of success not only with pitching but developing a lot of these more raw athletes uh, with big upside into you know um, more refined players. Yeah, and that obviously is important because not all of the draft class grades that are going to go out, not immediately after the draft, because we know the dangers of that. But over time, when you look back on this this class, I mean, a lot of the value is going to be found outside of the first round or two. And maybe the Braves have hit on a couple here with the prep prospects that they picked up at four and five. Jeff Potts, appreciate all of your time. Really enjoyed chatting about the Braves draft with you and would love to have you back on to talk about maybe where these Braves uh, you know, prospects as they become will fit into the Braves system. And, of course, Baseball America does a fantastic job of taking care of us when it comes to ranking all the prospects and giving us all the need-to-know info. So I appreciate your time and hope to chat with you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Grant. When we come back here on From the Diamond, we will turn our attention back to the 2023 Atlanta Braves and what is ahead in the week to come. And of course, a whole bunch of other storylines that we got to talk about as the second half is off and running and we're heading towards the trade deadline and the Braves, they may have a few more questions than answers in the health department. We'll talk about that and much more as we wrap up this edition of From the Diamond with Grant McCauley next right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Take a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond. This is Grant McCauley, live from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. As we wrap up this week's edition of the show with a little bit more Braves talk, hope you enjoyed that deep dive into the draft. I know I enjoyed the conversation with Jeff Ponce of Baseball America. He's going to be working to update the Braves' top 30 rankings. So if you're a subscriber for Baseball America or if you're thinking about doing it, a lot of good content can be gleaned. Uh, from what they're doing. And it's year-round. It's not just by the handbook. I'm I'm an old-school guy. I like the you know, hold the paper copy in my hands. My buddy Carlos Colazzo does the Braves' top 30 prospects there, but they update them throughout the course of the season. And with a brand-new draft class, I mean, you could conceivably be looking at half a dozen guys that could jump into the top 30, especially for a Braves organization that, again, you know, they graduated a lot of prospects. A lot of those guys are stars for a club that's looking to go deep into October yet again. But I appreciate Jeff Ponce of Baseball America imparting all that knowledge about the 2023 draft class. A lot of fun to talk to him. Uh, as far as the Braves go, you know, this week, uh, losing 2 out of 3 to the Chicago White Sox, not exactly how they want to start the second half. That's the understatement of at least this segment. But they have the opportunity to enjoy the off day on Monday then get right back to work against a Diamondbacks club they're familiar with and a Diamondbacks team that's been struggling a bit uh, over the course of the middle of the season. We'll see, you know, what kind of staying power do they have because they're going to have to go toe-to-toe and blow for blow most likely with an L.A. Dodgers club that – as we know, can turn it on in the second half and certainly can uh, be imposing when it comes to October. Uh, that's what will be coming up next. And then the Milwaukee Brewers, the suddenly resurgent Milwaukee Brewers, they've been taking it to the Reds. They have moved back into first place in the Central. That is also ahead for the Braves uh, next weekend. So a lot of things going on. Of course, Hall of Fame weekend next week. Going to be a lot of fun to talk about that because you got Fred McGriff going into the Hall of Fame. Of course, Scott Rowland uh, will also be in the class. It's going to I think be, you know, I always enjoy the Hall of Fame discussion and not so much the voting discussion because that wastes a lot of your time and mine. But when you do see these guys get recognized for long and great careers, and it took a long time for Scott Rowland to get on the writer's ballot to say nothing of how long it took Fred McGriff to get on or to get in through the modern era committee voting, which happened over the winter. But um, looking forward to that next week, of course. But uh, this week for the Braves, I, I think it was highlighted most of all by more injuries. And it's, I think it become a tiresome headline, a worrisome headline for a lot of folks. But 
this has been a very resilient club, but how much can you be tested in one particular group? And that one particular group I'm speaking of, of course, is the bullpen. Two more guys go down to shoulder injuries. A shoulder strain is putting Nick Anderson on the 60-day IL. Now, he had dealt with a lot of arm injuries, had a UCL brace procedure a while back, and rather than having Tommy John surgery, really hadn't been healthy since, what, 2020, 2021 was when he started going through all those arm issues and had only thrown about 25 or 30 innings over the course of the last three years. Well, he had made 35 appearances in the first half as one of the primary setup men for the Braves and for Rysel Iglesias. But it looked like over the last a week or so, and, and there's a period, and I know Spencer Strider talked about this, where you feel a little bit of fatigue. It just starts to set in, and then you're kind of able to reset it as you go along. But it just kind of comes at you at different times for different lengths of time over the course of a long season, whether that's making 30 to 35 starts as a starting pitcher or whether it's going out of the bullpen where you know Brian Snitker said this over the course of the week when Nick Anderson landed on the I.L., Everybody's going to have a heavy workload, particularly if you're a talented and important reliever. Like, you're going to get used a lot. Just kind of is the way the game's played these days. You can't stay away from everybody all the time. I mean, as much as we like to hindsight just about every move or decision a manager makes, I mean, it's a, it's a tough call to manage the workloads of relievers. But Nick Anderson was one of the bright spots in the first half, and hopefully he's going to be able to get back in September. I think he's upbeat and, and you know, anticipating getting back to the club. I know Snit said that they – Hope to have him back in September. That's the goal here by giving him significant time to rest. That's why it's a 60-day IL move rather than, say, a 15-day. Of course, you have 40-man spots that are at a premium, particularly this time of year. Uh, but A.J. Minter going on the IL right after that, that was kind of, you know, in the words of Chris Farley, could have done without that. And A.J. was dealing with a pectoral strain of some sort from his last appearance before the All-Star break in Tampa Bay. And it's got a kind of a shoulder thing that's barking at him a little bit. Give him a little bit of time. Hopefully get him back in a couple of weeks. 15-day IL for him. But it doesn't make the job any easier for a Braves bullpen that's going to be tested. I mean, we saw what happened on Sunday. Colby Allard got knocked around a little bit. Now he's dealing with a shoulder thing. You had to use Michael Soroka in relief, which, again, that's not a big red flag. That wasn't you know a panic maneuver. This was a chance for him to get some innings in, in advance of whenever his next scheduled start was going to be a little bit later in the week. But... You know, when you don't have two of your key relievers in a close game, who's going to get those opportunities? Right now, if you look at it, Joe Jimenez, Kirby Yates, Ben Heller, those are going to be guys that are going to have to step in and get some big outs for the Braves in advance of Rysel Iglesias, who, of course, you need to stay healthy and productive as well at the back end of that bullpen so everything can kind of stay on course. Because when you are the Braves, a team with the best record in baseball, the biggest divisional lead in baseball, at least you have that to work with, and you're not having to be in the place where you were a year ago this time. Oh, well, we're five and a half games back. Well, now we're three and a half games back. But every game was important to you, and every game is important. But when you're doing the chasing, it's a lot harder, I think, to overcome these kinds of injuries. When you're in the position the Braves are now, they can actually afford to say, okay, rather than going day-to-day with this guy, we're going to give him a little bit of time. And they have had quality depth that has been able to step up in that bullpen in particular to help them out. Uh, the timetables, though, on each of these guys, Mentor, again, doesn't believe it's a serious issue. He continues to play catch, just wasn't ready to pitch, despite getting some time off during the All-Star break. And Anderson, I think the hope is to have him back in September. But losing those two key pieces and then thinking about being without another lefty and Dylan Lee, who played a huge role in the Braves' bullpen a year ago. You also don't have Jesse Chavez at the moment, though he is kind of eyeing an early August return. He took that line drive off the knee, which I'm still amazed that that didn't end his season. That could have easily been a fractured 
leg issue. I mean, we saw what happened to Charlie Morton in the World Series. I thought it was an exact repeat of, of that kind of scenario for Jesse Chavez. But fortunately, he's continuing to throw and is looking to get himself back into this Braves bullpen mix at some point, maybe in two, three weeks. At least that, that's his hope. And the Braves would love to have him back at this point, too. So you're going to have to have rehab assignments. That, of course, is on the table for both these guys. Dylan Lee hasn't pitched in a big league game since back in May. And, of course, Jesse Chavez has been down since the middle of June. But it would be great to have him back in. But I say all of that and lay all of those things out there to tell you we got to talk about the trade deadline. And if you asked me a week ago, what do the Braves need? I would have told you, yeah, some depth for the pitching staff. I mean, you can always look for bullpen help. And I'm sure Alex Santopoulos has already got a nice little list and has already made some calls and has his whole crew working you know, towards figuring out some good trade targets. And some of those were only going to become clear after we got closer to the trade deadline and some teams could make some decisions on what they are or perhaps what they are not in 2023. We talked about this, I think, last week on the show, the Cardinals saying, oh, look, we're going to trade some people. I thought that's fascinating because the Cardinals haven't had to say that in about the last 25 years because they just don't have very many losing seasons. This would be just their second losing season since 2000. They just don't have that many. Jordan Hicks, that'd be an interesting arm for the Braves. I'm sure it'd be an interesting arm for a number of other clubs. And then the other thing I was curious about was whether or not they would look to get one of those, what I would call kind of a just-in-case starter who could maybe help out a little bit, particularly as you look to get Max Fried back in the next couple of weeks. And then Kyle Wright, I think the timetable is, I would think, early September just based on just doing some math in my head. He's going to hopefully get off the mound this week, start playing a little bit of catch there move into some bullpen sessions, face some live hitters. Then he's going to have to go on a minor league rehab assignment that'll look a bit like what Max Fried is doing. You'll go out there, throw 35 pitches, throw 30 pitches, then maybe 60 pitches. I think that's the plan for Freed in his next outing. And then try to get up to 80, 85 pitches and maybe come back to the big leagues at that point. Maybe that final rehab start isn't really a rehab start and you just kind of bring him back in and take it easy against a major league club and just you know don't elevate the pitch count too much if the Braves felt like that's something that they want to do or need to do. With a nine-and-a-half game lead in the National League East coming into Sunday, I don't think that they really want to do that or need to do that at the moment. Now, a lead can you know, start to evaporate, but when you think about what the Braves have in place right now, I think they've got enough to hold serve over the next two weeks in advance of the trade deadline and maybe get some reinforcements in that could help you out. We've seen one major trade, I would call the major trade, not really for the trade deadline itself, but Aroldis Chapman going to the Texas Rangers a couple of weeks ago. But otherwise... I haven't seen too many people pulling the trigger too early on some of these. And some of that, the reasoning for that is, of course, that you've got expanded playoffs and teams don't have to make that decision. But with no waiver trades, I mean, it's on the GM. It behooves you to get as much depth as you can in here. So when I talk about a just-in-case starting pitcher, it's exactly that. It's an insurance policy based on what we've kind of already seen this year because we're 90-some-odd games into the season and have gotten 10 starts, five apiece, out of Max Fried and Kyle Wright. If you ask me where I thought the Braves would be if that were the case back in spring training, I would not tell you 30 games over 500. That's for sure. So the trade deadline, I think, is highlighted by a need for relievers. And some clubs, you got some obvious sellers, whether that's the Royals, like the Pirates, clearly at this point. So a few other closers that you could find. There were a couple of relievers I even liked that the Oakland Athletics were running out there. That's some pretty good arms. And clearly we know the Braves and the A's are not afraid to make some trades. That's certainly possible. But uh, as we look at last year's trade deadline, if you kind of flash back, Bryson Iglesias was this buzzer-beater deal that Alex Anthopoulos just happened to pull off with the Braves already having Kenley Jansen under contract. So Kenley continued to close for him a year ago. He got Rysel in and was able to work in a mostly a seventh-inning role a season ago. 
alongside A.J. Mentor is, you know, the three-headed monster, if you will, out of the Braves bullpen. It didn't play out in the postseason the way that Atlanta wanted it to because the Phillies, they just kind of ran into a buzzsaw there. But he built up a bullpen like that. I think it would be helpful to figure out if you can get somebody else in that could help him out and really kind of take some of the strain off of some of these guys that have been asked to do an awful lot over the course of the year. And we're just seeing that as some of these injuries have started to pile up one after another, after another, after another. Other good things happening for the Braves as far as these injuries are concerned, these injury updates. Max Fried out on a rehab assignment. He pitched again on Saturday. This time it was for high A Rome because Gwinnett was traveling, so Freed's not going to jump on those minor league charters or those minor league buses anytime soon. So he just took himself on up to Rome. Three innings on 30 pitches, two hits, no walks, a scoreless innings. I'll point that out. Three strikeouts for him. I think at least two more starts for Max Freed, as I said a minute ago, would probably get him into a place where he's about ready to come back and start helping the Braves out. And that would coincide pretty nicely with the trade deadline because you just want to know that that piece is good and in place so that you can make an educated guess about what kind of players that you might need. But looking up and down the Braves lineup, there's no glaring holes. You don't need to go out and trade for big middle-of-the-order bat or you certainly don't need to trade for a shortstop, which I think some people back on opening day thought, okay, well, maybe Arcia can hold it down until July. I think Arcia is going to be just fine. Michael Harris is healthy. He's been hitting left field, I think, between Eddie Rosario and Kevin Pillar. That's been a pretty good platoon out there. Could they look to add maybe another outfielder? I guess, but I don't think we're looking at big names and earth-shaking trades. Your right fielder is an MVP candidate. Your first baseman probably is, too. One of your two catchers is, and your catching duo is the best in baseball. Your second baseman's having a career year. Your third baseman is on pace to hit about 265 with 35 homers or 30 homers. That's not bad either, and he seems to be the guy that everybody's pointing at saying, what's wrong with him? It's just been an up-and-down year for him. I mean, Austin Riley doesn't have, the, I think, the run production he'd like to have, but it hasn't been an awful year. It's just kind of been an uneven year, up and down. And there's, again, a lot of baseball has to be played for him to figure it out. He can still play a major role in this. But when you look at the Braves lineup, long story short, the depth is there. Could they add a couple of players to the bench here or there, maybe make some upgrades? Sure. I think they could do that. But how many trades is Alex Anthopoulos going to make you know, compared to some other years where in 2021 it was a necessity? that if you really wanted to make something of this club, you got to go out and make four or five trades. And that's what he did. He went out there and made, what, five at least trades that I can think of off the top of my head. And that turned that 2021 season into one of the most special that we'll ever think about. And then last year he made a you know, number of trades to try to help out the Braves pitching staff and get them on track. But, again, the deadline's a couple of weeks away, but it's one of the most exciting parts of every season, I think. And once we get into that, July 29th, 30th, 31st, the lead up to the August 1st trade deadline, and of course, right on up to that, what, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I think it is, on the 1st, there's going to be some wheeling and dealing. It's going to be pretty exciting. Again, the week ahead for the Braves, off on Monday, three-game series against the Arizona Diamondbacks starts on Tuesday, then on Friday, they will head out to Milwaukee and take on the first-place Brewers. So, a couple of tough teams coming up for the Braves. And we'll be back next week to talk all about it here on From the Diamond. Again, appreciate my guest Dale Murphy joining us a little bit earlier, talking about all kinds of good stuff from the good old days of Braves baseball in the 1980s. And, of course, Jeff Ponce of Baseball America joining me earlier to talk about the 2023 Braves draft class. Make sure you check it out on the podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcast and on the Odyssey app. And make sure you're following along on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. You can find me there and links for everything on FromTheDiamond.com. Once again, thanks for taking some of your time this weekend to Tune in to From the Diamond. Dom, thank you for all your help. I appreciate you. And we look forward to talking to you next week right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And until then, so long, everyone.